I'm delighted to have Steve Oppenheim here with me today. Uh, Steve is a high achieving Californian CTO with over 30 years industry experience. Um, welcome, Steve, to our podcast series, Tech Talk on Tap uh, for technology leaders within financial services. Um, thank you for joining us. Harvey, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. No problem. Um, so I suppose just to get us moving along, if you could give us a little bit of background about yourself, you know, what you've been doing over the last few years and historically, any, any things you want to draw out, that would be fantastic. Sure, sure. Uh, presently, I'm an in-resident CTO for DXC Technology. I'm based uh, in Europe, uh, specifically uh, Paris, France, and I operate on, on a global uh, level. Uh, I grew up originally in Southern California, and uh, I specialized originally uh, in, uh, in, with HP at emerging technologies, integrating emerging technologies, uh, such as uh, DCE, Kerberos, and I even worked on the program of Imagine Card. So early on in my career, uh, I worked on uh, security from a technical integration perspective and a global level. So I always, I, I guess this was a marked point uh, where I was able to uh, get an infusion of this uh, global uh, uh, global community. So that that was a foundation for me for uh, actually kind of spanning my entire career, but just uh, I just share that with you. From there, uh, I went on into uh, IT uh, with uh, the enterprise IT and BPO outsourcing with Hewlett Packard, and uh, that that uh, enabled me to actually take on other uh, larger roles, such as leading very large uh, Department of Defense initiatives globally uh, from a uh, outsourcing and uh, deployment perspective. And from, that, from there, I remained in Europe to be able to assist uh, the European uh, global community within uh, HPE and DXE uh, to be able to further the uh, CIO and CTO consulting uh, engagements that we have uh, in residence within, within Europe. So uh, that's kind of a broad rush from my perspective. Fantastic, thank you. I'll tell you what one point that is interesting that you, you draw out. You were looking at security and thinking about security as a key point a long time before it became an essential on the to-do list for every CEO. Uh, and and that, that, that's quite fascinating how, how you were thinking about that so early on, like three decades before it's so prevalent now and how integral it is to most organizations. Um, it, it's an interesting free internet, if you will. Yeah, there's a really pre-internet. Uh, this particular technology that we worked with, it, you can even look it up on the web now. It was, it was called the HP Imagine Card, and effectively, what it was was a kind of a, a, a standard uh, standard smart card. And what it had on it was a SQL database, and it it uh, it would, had the ability to authenticate and authorize based on uh, passwords as well as uh, biometric. Uh, it was a combined technology that brought together the best of GemPlus, Informix, and HP. It was a tri-venture, if you will. So what, what's interesting about this is that there you could actually see the writing on the wall that security was going to be a huge future technology from that point. So it made sense not only to invest yourself, but to surround uh, a, uh, your entire, uh, entire future around those technologies that would use and involve technologies of this type. 
Yeah, it's, fa it's fascinating because clearly cybersecurity is a huge, huge concern for all of us now. Nearly every firm you can think of is getting ransomware attacks on a daily basis and you, you, you cannot afford not to have some sort of policy or tech in place now, otherwise you are vulnerable. Absolutely. I mean, you have a ransomware attacks, you've got your intrusion, uh, intrusion protection that you have to build up against. And what's, what's seemingly um, the structure is the classic leapfrog effect, where you, you prevent a problem, but then the problem then gets leaped by uh, another attack, which takes existing uh, or future vulnerabilities that happen to come out on new uh, product releases and exploits those. And so you need to leap over that problem. So you become a basically a, an enabler of solutions and a solver of problems. Which, yeah, and which is, I suppose, the key role of a leading technologist in, 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 in these ever-changing times. And I, I suppose many of our listeners will be really interested in what you've been doing in the last five or six years in particular, because that's when you've been more Europe focused. You've been CTO in, in residence for Lloyds of London with Kembrew, uh, Moneybank, Generali Insurance, Zurich Insurance. You've had a lot of exposure to what I would imagine is largely uh, multi-site, multinational modernization style programs. Um, yeah, you bring out a lot of uh, a lot of the salient points where I've been able to touch a lot of different businesses, uh, a lot financial, some logistics, and a lot of other variety of uh, of technology sectors. Uh, and and what I find interesting about all of those is that as a technology leader, it's it's about enabling business and solving business problems. And we as technology enablers are that bridge that, that spans the chasm of the, the business thought, where the business wants to go, and being those enablers and the change agents to be able to make that happen. And our tools of the trade are technology. So with that said, lately, my, my latest engagement is with uh, Zurich Insurance. Um, the idea around this particular uh, engagement is to take the business and reduce operations. Um, for example, you, a typical operational deployment might have for, let's say, 5,000, maybe even up to uh, 10,000 or so uh, servers with databases, et cetera, of a, a variety of complexities. You're going to have uh, FTE structure of operations of around uh, of around uh, 70 plus individuals, depending on your 24 by seven operational characteristics. Now, with that, with uh, what we're doing here is we're uh, implementing uh, in four data centers, a hyper-converged hardware infrastructure that is, I would say, uh, taken to the extreme where it's completely integrated and automated using VRA technology uh, via VMware. And this is going to bring operations staff for this infrastructure on both continents, both the USA and Europe, from 70 individuals down to approximately uh, nine, 24 by seven. So this takes automation, not only from an infrastructure perspective, but all the way to the front end portal where it becomes very lightweight for the, uh, for the developer to be able to procure, establish, and then of course, uh, operate and maintain their instances. And it's interesting you bring up automation, which is another 
salient issue that, that occupies the minds of, of many C-suite technology leaders at the moment. And one of the things I was going to ask you about was obviously we're living through some strange times, some very difficult and challenging times over the last year and a half. And I was going to ask you about any big learns or positives that emerged for you or your people or, or your business as a result of that. And I imagine automation is one of the things that crops up. Uh, absolutely, without question. There's really two things that uh, kind of um, uh, pop uh, ever since the the, the COVID has uh, uh, has come in because we've kind of uh, because COVID came the uh, meeting of customers in uh, in front face to face toe to toe you might say. Uh, has been relegated to being uh, remote and with the team. And what's that caused us to do is to look internally within business to be, how may we be increasingly effective? How can we be effective for the business? And that means driving uh, uh, an increase in profits, of course, decrease in costs. Well, how do you do that tangibly with, uh, with IT? Well, of course, taking off uh, the mundane routine uh, routine operations. Well, how do you do that? Well, you take that next step. Again, it's a step-by-step -step, uh, element, and you need to take that. And we've taken it to the automation spectrum using VRA, VROPS technology as an example in this particular situation. And what that's done is it's enabled us to model operational capacities in an extreme automation perspective using hyper-converged uh, hardware. And if you do this, then you're able to decrease your operational staff and increase your productivity. And you're able to strategize from a more effective IT perspective, not only on the business side, but also tactically from the IT perspective of where to put your key individuals. And maybe this will come out later in our conversation, but it's about almost like in a movie set where you're casting individuals in the right role so that they're most effective. And this is an ever-changing thing because you're automating one day and you're, or you're uh, creating and uh, optimizing databases one day in a, uh, in a cluster scenario. Next day, you're needing to automate that. So you need to be able to dynamically cast these individuals in a proper manner to uh, it, it maximizes the business. And, and I think, a lot of people get a little bit concerned about automation because they think it's a replacement thing, as in we don't need our, our, our colleagues, our people anymore. We can automate it. But that, they're missing the point, I think. Um, of course, there's an element of that. However, what it is doing, hopefully, is facilitating some of the more, as you alluded to, mundane tasks being removed from a role to allow people to play to their strengths and do the bits that really matter, the business, the customer engagement stuff, um, the, the, the stuff where they can really have an impact rather than inefficient uh, inputs that don't really achieve that much. What the topic that you've brought out has uh, been around ever since the invention of outsourcing, because when you outsource, the, the whole fear that comes into focus is, hey, I'm going to lose my job to other people. Well, that there's an element of that, but more so, it's about business change and main, and organizing that change and making sure that that change is. Uh, is implemented in an organized fashion to enable the business. And what happens is that allows you to strategically place people in a better fitting strategic role from, as you said, from 
maybe operating on databases day to day, which is the mundane tasks, to a more strategic role of, of integration, optimization. And you're slowly moving these individuals into a, a casting role or casting these people into an optimized role that better fits for where the business is. And business is always changing. So this never ends, which is an exciting thing for me because I love seeing the change. I love seeing how people develop and it allows people to develop along the continuum of technologies. Yeah, and, and change is about people and processes, right? Absolutely correct. Uh, and another another element that um, that comes to mind within this past year is AIML, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and this has to go with operations. Let's tie it together. A lot of times we're managing operations in a manual fashion. We're dealing, uh, pulling out those metrics and we're establishing, hey, my computer's been up and down this much time, but are we really using that information effectively? This past year, I've been able to implement AIML for the operations where it literally draws out some deep rooted information and figures out, hey, this is not the, the best way to implement uh, implement monitoring. What we've been able to do is to centralize monitoring in one particular uh, customer's example in a manner where we're no longer reacting with uh, agents that pop up because of a problem of storage space getting, uh, uh, getting uh, out of sync or not enough storage space or having the, the cache uh, fault, et cetera. These are reactionary measures that have been used in the 90s, the 2000s, 2010s. Now it's more so we're able to dump all of this information to a single data lake, use artificial intelligence to mine this information to tell us better how our whole operation and how our application is, is actually running and when we're proactively going to be running out of memory, when we're going to be running out of space. So we can be proactive in how we're going to manage our operations instead of completely reactive. This is a whole new type of thinking so that we can be more efficient and more effective for our business. And I think one of the outcomes of the last 18 months is that machine learning, um, artificial intelligence is even more crucial because we're interested in the data now because we need the data to see if we're being successful as we adapt to these major changes and what what these algorithms do is give us an idea about what is the what, what is the preferred outcome what is a better way it helps us make more informed decisions and and i think now we're learning we can't make decisions without data we can't put our finger in the air or what our gut tells us necessarily because we how can you make a strategic decision without the facts and especially now we're all remote and we've moved to more outcomes focused management leadership rather than operational absolutely correct you're spot on harvey because uh the challenge up to now has been there's been so much data you can only focus on certain key uh, KPIs or SLAs that you measure, you metric, et cetera. But now we have the capability and the intelligence for using the artificial intelligence to be able to have a load of data and program that artificial intelligence to mine that data because our own individual capacities are only so fast, so broad, and we can't connect the dots 
fast enough because of the influx of that data. But now, using the engines that we have, we can model that and have a much, much more accurate outcome. I think anyone that isn't thinking about it is way behind the curve now. So, I mean, that's that's Absolutely. a given. So, that, I mean, okay, so let's move into what what changes, challenges, opportunities do you envisage, see for, for, for financial services or indeed technology in the future? Well, uh, first of all, change. Uh, I believe change uh, is going to increase. Um, we have rapid change now. Uh, we have uh, not only changes in business, changes in paradigms, changes in IT, all of this technology is going to continue. We need to get comfortable with the idea of change. And with that, we need to be able to be comfortable with how we navigate that. It's kind of like uh, sailing the boat in the high seas. You need to be able to get comfortable with it and you need to be able to understand how you're going to navigate that in an organized fashion. You can't boil the ocean, but you can, there are strategies by which you can head towards the high ground and achieve good solid business practices of how you apply IT. For example, in the future for financial services, uh, we were just talking about AIML. And I really think that there's going to be kind of a merging of AIML with kind of some other emerging technologies such as blockchain. Blockchain's really in its uh, infancy, it's coming out. Uh, it'll be quickly used for non-repudiation of financial transactions to be able to prove a transaction actually occurred. It will be the litmus test. Now, once you have that, and that's implemented, it's, it's quite easy to see and, and kind of map the dots that that's going to be used to track security. It's going to be tracked to not only security, but authentication. And so not only is it going to be used for tra uh, financial transactions, but for tracking other things, for example, logistics, logistic tracking, uh, let's say the classic uh, providers of UPS, FedEx, you're going to be able to track a package all of these transactions, not just financially, but if we broaden that perspective to the financial transactions and logistic transactions, you can broaden even to food transport. The blockchain has immense, immense capabilities. Uh, and that's, that's something, if you're not really looking at that, you really need to look at that. Um, I see that even uh, merging potentially down the road with uh, biological security. Uh, and re, uh, going into biological ID verification. Think of it now, we're, we're, you, you see that uh, with COVID, there is the request for a, uh, an ID card that actually tracks your, uh, your uh, immunization. Well, what if you lose that ID card? What's going to happen? Where's that stored? You have to think about the loss of this uh, information. You can certainly put it on a, uh, a smart card so it's locally available, but also remotely uh, transactable in a secure server. You can do this. And uh, you can, so I see that there is going to be a merging of these technologies down the road with not only the, the blockchain, the security, and using the intelligence uh, AI bots to be able to help care for this data, but also help defend against this data longer term. So let me uh, move on from biological security to intelligent and automated AI bot security. Um, 
we have a situation now I mentioned before about the leapfrog effect and about uh, technology having to uh, combat attacks such as malware bite attacks. Uh, and I think what we're gonna be seeing is intelligent automated hacking prevention come out soon mm -hmm. because these intelligent automated bots are such where we already see them today attacking. Uh, we have, uh, uh, we have uh, uh, DDoS attacks att uh, attacking all the websites that are happening now. We have to defend against those. Well, I see that there is going to be just the reverse happening where we're gonna be taking those on the offensive and people implementing prevention, intrusion to protection systems are gonna be taking these AI bots and programming them for uh, an intelligent automated hacking prevention so that they, when they see a DDoS attack, they're gonna find out those IP addresses and either A, attack back to actually defend those or actually to put up a frontline defense against those attacks to build up the wall, so to speak. That's fascinating. It's almost like stuff you would expect to see in Minority Report or something, a futuristic movie, but it's happening now and we're in it. It is absolutely happening now. People are programming these bots internally, externally um, to be able to attack and defend. So we're getting much more into the automated defense mechanism. But what does this mean for all of us? This is going to make us more valuable as IT programmers. Uh, practitioners, because again, we are the change agents. We need to know about this technology because business is going to come to us and say, I've got a business problem. How do I get to my business destination? And understanding the lay of the land using IT is what we're about. We need to understand where the potholes are, not only uh, to implement technology, but to understand where the, where the problems are along the business continuum to be able to get the business from point A to point B. And, 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 and you alluded to it earlier, um, and we are in an age of constant advancement. And, and, and that is the new normal now, which, which perhaps brings its own challenges in a way because we're in this technological revolution. Change is omnipresent. And, and, so, and how can technology enable us you know, to survive and thrive and keep moving forwards. Well, you know, it, it, kind of what we touched on the past, in, uh, just in the previous um, question, uh, technology is going to continue to change. Business is going to continue to change. Change is all about us. Uh, we need to, uh, as, as technical practitioners, uh, need to really get comfortable with that change and surround us with an environment where we can stay up on that change. What are the leading change agents for business? For example, what we just talked about around the, uh, the integration, the automation, the AIML, these are big ticket items that are going to be uh, uh, really, um, uh, I would say, uh, catapulting businesses into the future with using technology. And the way that we're gonna be able to th uh, thrive and survive is thinking of ourselves as the change agents between business and the technical organization change that, that changes both the organization and the technology that underlies the organization and enables the business to occur. So I, I, I see that it's going to get faster. It's going to get uh, uh, seemingly more chaotic, but it's about 
weathering that change and having a method to understand what is best for the businesses. There's no, there's no gap now, like maybe scroll back a decade, certainly a couple of decades, there's no gap now between IT strategy and business strategy. If they're not aligned, you're failing or you will fail. Now, there's uh, the lines that seemingly blur uh, now between business and, uh, and technology. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Typically, your financial, financial applications, for example, would report up into the CFO. And the CFO would have responsibility over the financial applications. Why? Because they make revenue. And he's responsible for that revenue. And then you have the CIO and, of course, the CTO that takes care of the daily uh, uh, infrastructure business. Well, now what you have is you have the CFO asking the CIO to decrease costs and to increase efficiency in the IT infrastructure, but don't touch my applications. Well, now the applications are intertwined. As we move to the web, you're, you have the infrastructure as a service. Now you have the platform as a service. And of course, you have software as a service. All of your applications are now getting intertwined with the infrastructure itself. So the business as an organization is also getting intertwined within that uh, business. And the and the whole process, is, we're seeing it change. And that means that our jobs as practitioners, change agents also need to change. We need to become much more attuned and understand the pulse of the business, the direction of the business to be able to affect that change from a technology perspective. And I think it's, as you've alluded to, it's fair to say organizations and leaders are having to do more and be aware of more, take on more concepts than they have ever before. It's not an operational job anymore behind the scenes. You have to be close to the market, to the changes, to the technology, to understand it and then adapt. Absolutely. And I think I'm uh, personally, I've been in a very fortunate role of being in, uh, in resident CTO because many companies will have a gap. They have a gap in function, a gap in capability, and they'll say, hey, I need somebody to come in and solve a business problem here. Of course, the outcome is going to be a, um, an IT implementation that helps the business get there, obviously, uh, but they have a gap. That's why they're asking for an in-resident cap capability uh, of that nature. And uh, to, to what you're saying, companies have a gap. Those gaps come from a lack of being able to understand or maintain that pulse of the technology and merging that with the business. So, uh, and, and that's where some of our expertise as change agents come into focus. You, you no longer can steer the company by spreadsheet. I've seen people and managers be, uh, being asked to do more, much more, not just managing an organization, but now uh, being able to be effective and materially uh, impacting to internal customers as well as external customers. This is going to be much more important. So this means not only you need to be a change agent between business and technical, but you need to be able to bridge those gaps between all the other stakeholder constituents. You've got to be able to involve them and enable them to be effective in and have be invested into your program. As an example, you have business unit, business unit leads. 
many times they are looking at simply being consumers. This has been the classic model. They're a consumer of IT services. No longer is that an effective model. They need, need to be intertwined with how the evolution of, of IT is uh, progressing. They need to be investors into that technology, of that technology and how that develops because time is of the essence. You don't have time to go the full cycle of establishing a, um, a, a service and then having their feedback after the service is uh, implemented to be able to hone that technology. You need them involved from day one so that you have the businesses feedback directly all of the information that's going to help make that business become effective and get to its destination faster. I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff, Steve. And, and I guess what's interesting about you too is you've got a very global view uh, as, as, as an American, clearly having, having, having worked in your homeland extensively, but also having quite a lot of exposure to European markets, Central Europe and England. Um, it, I, I'm, of course, for example, let's use, let's use banks as an example. Um, the UK banks probably are quite advanced you know, in the global sphere in terms of where they got to, to embracing the changes for user experience, user interface in, in the digital world. Whereas maybe, maybe in America, it's quite different. So we're at different stages, aren't we, in the evolution of the modernization of these IT programs in different countries? Absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it's really interesting to see the, I wanna say the uh, evolution and the acceptance of certain technologies. Uh, they're almost in a, in a wave pattern. And uh, I feel like I'm sitting in ground zero in Central Europe because a lot of it comes from, uh, comes from a European perspective, uh, lack of a better term. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of technologies that are driven uh, by America, by Silicon Valley, a lot of root technologies. But from a, a, a banking perspective, a financial perspective, an insurance perspective, things uh, where we see uh, financial systems move and shape, um, I mean, I've seen a lot of the benchmarks being driven uh, by the leadership in, uh, I would say, the UK and the European communities. And then it kind of uh, has a wave of filtering out from there. You know, let me just give you just, for, uh, just a, a very simple perspective. Me being an American, uh, uh, a, I would call myself now a global citizen. Uh, it's only recently where I could actually call up a bank in the United States and say, hey, I have a European address. Can I open up, up an account? And they'll say, no, I need a U.S. address. The concept of, of, of spanning borders in the United States still is not pervasive, which is really odd. But you, go, uh, you operate anywhere in any other country, uh, not a problem interesting isn't it so there's a long way still to go to promote that acceptance and that change absolutely correct and of, of course we see uh, it happen in waves but again there's this um i, I do want to say that uh that need is the mother of invention absolutely. when a business has a need and they un truly understand the direction that they want to go then mapping the dots between the two points it's not real difficult to be able to do that because you, you can take those, dot, uh, those two endpoints and map the IT change that needs to happen. A lot of times though, uh, we find that uh, in a financial situation, it means revamping 
their, uh, their entire IT operations, optimizing it, upgrading it, modernizing it, uh, because it's been so, I want to say, uh, uh, it's been uh, lethargically maintained over time. And that's what we, that's what we often see. Mm. These legacy systems that are sort of lumbering around in the background. And, and many times we still see them costing a lot of money because there is reluctance to move away from uh, said systems uh, for a maybe a more open source system that might uh, might decrease their overall cost because there's comfort in the existing system. Now there's a lot to say about comfort because there's tried and true capabilities around that. So I, I don't want to just just push it off to say, no, you shouldn't think that way. There is an element, there's a balance. There's always a balance. And, and you're right, there is comfort in continuity, isn't there? It's familiar, it's what we know, but Absolutely. we possibly also have to accept that we have to step out of that comfort zone if we are to move forward. So it's always a fine balance, isn't it? But especially for these huge organizations that know they need to change, but maybe unsure of how to do it with minimum disruption. Uh, absolutely. And, and that's the key is minimum disruption, uh, because in the continuum of business, you're going to have that that what I call your application value chain. And what I mean by that is every application brings a certain value or a series amount, uh, a certain perspective of revenue to the business. If you establish what that value chain is, you'll know exactly what application is important to your business and what needs to be latest and greatest and up-to-date in technology. Listen, that is really, really interesting. Some of the topics that you've covered, um, I know just picking up on the blockchain stuff, a lot of people find it quite hard to get their head around blockchain and how it works. But I, I suppose inherently what, what makes it, so, in layman's terms, what makes it so useful and clever and disruptive is that essentially the data you can't modify it, can you, with blockchain, which is why it's secure, which is why it's of interest, which why is it which why it has so many disruptive uses for things like security, payments, healthcare, that sort of stuff. It's not to say that you can't modify the data. You can modify the data, but then that increases the blockchain because the whole idea of the chain is that the the life and the history of the chain is uh, uh, undeniable. You can't repudiate it. It is permanent. It's in, indelibly marked and that's it. Absolutely correct. And that's the value of it because it's the, the impact to all of the various industries, not just financial, is immense. And I suppose what's interesting is look how much change we've seen pre-millennium pre till now over the last 20 or so years. We're not slowing down. It's you know where can we go in the next decade or two it's it'll be really interesting to see how things advance um and you know things like power apps that we've discussed in some of these talks before you know handing over the technology to the users which seems quite frightening but actually is enabling rapid change absolutely it's almost kind of uh, like a snowball running downhill we started in the, uh, the 50s, you know, slow, slow, but it's gaining momentum, it's gaining weight, it's gaining speed, and that's what we're dealing with. And so as 
techno technological leaders, you need to be able to understand, well, how do you deal with this big snowball of data, of technology? Uh, how do you deal with this? How do you maintain the, this, uh, the understanding of what's on the horizon? And it's a matter of, uh, it becomes an art form for the leaders now to be able to, to, uh, to orchestrate how they understand new technology and how they select new technology and make sure that they are aware of how the impact to the business. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Steve. Well, look, thank you so much. Um, let's move away from maybe some of the more weightier issues of what faces uh, the challenges technology leaders face and um, at, at this point we'd always like to uh, run through a few quick fire personals for a bit more of an informal uh, sure. view uh, which is always fun um, so let's start with um, uh, favorite film uh, favorite film and uh, there's a reason behind all these uh, pulp fiction pulp fiction is a favorite film and uh, it, it has to do not with the uh, topic uh, or the uh, actual uh, subject matter, uh, it really has to do with the casting. If you look at the members of uh, the Pulp Fiction, they were cast absolutely perfectly for the roles that they're executing in the film. Um, I think I've watched that film uh, incalculable number of times to be able to try to find flaws in the character or the casting element. And uh, when I tie that to kind of one of, the, uh, one of the aspects of IT, we as leaders need to cast our people perfectly. Miscast means missed execution. So this is why the film resonates with me so. Uh, I mean, it is a wonderful film. It's a great Tarantino movie, uh, great soundtrack as well, of course. And, yeah. and you're right about the cast. I mean, uh, Bruce Willis wasn't doing anything and he was cast in the role of the sort of washed up boxer uh, brilliantly in that in, in that film. Um, but I suppose what it, who doesn't want to be able to dance like John Travolta, frankly, uh, is what I take away from that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it is a fantastic scene. So let's talk about music, um, uh, if, we, if we may, for a minute. Yeah, my favorite music, is, it's got to be uh, Bach, specifically the Passions, uh, along with, I would say, Beatles. Uh, these are, uh, I would say, two where the instruments have conversations. And just like we have conversations and being able to sit back and listen to uh, Bach and how uh, the the instruments uh, have conversations with one another and uh, have conversations with the background is it, just it, this is what excites me and this is what I look for in music and including the album with uh, Queen we are the champions just brilliant uh, this is just stands out as one of the brilliant uh, albums uh, in my opinion just because of how conversations are accomplished between instruments and the vocals. Well, you'll get no argument from me, Steve. I love, I love Queen. I love the Beatles. I don't know so much about classical music, but I do find it very relaxing. Um, but I mean, Revolver has to be one of the best albums of all time. Uh, That's a good one. Uh, I, 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 I remember it's got Tomorrow Never Knows on, and they use that in my favorite show of all time, which is Mad Men in a particular scene, uh, and it worked really, really well. Great song, great show. Um, 
Uh, now, I know that uh, you're an avid reader and, and, and books that can help improve us with business and with leadership. Um, and I think there's a couple that, you, that you, you, you've really enjoyed. Yeah, there's two really that stand out in, in my mind. Uh, one is called uh, Good to Great, uh, Why Some Companies uh, Make the Leap and Others Don't. And that's by uh, Jim Collins. The other one is First Break All the Rules. What the world's greatest managers do differently, and that's by Marcus uh, Buckingham. Now, the, the first uh, good to great, uh, it it really deals with uh, what we uh, understanding that good is the enemy of great, and being able to break uh, the rules that you uh, that would be formerly known as tradition. Don't be afraid to break those rules. It really got me thinking about how to do things differently. Don't always approach things from the same perspective. The other one is breaking all the rules with uh, the greatest, what greatest managers do differently. This really, just to tie into Pulp Fiction, deal, uh, really impacted me from the perspective of casting people in their best role. You might have a person that is a, a, a good generalist, uh, uh, but what does he do best? making sure that he optimizes his capability for, for the business. Not to say that you don't let him grow. There's always opportunities to, to grow along that continuum, just like an actor performs great in a particular movie, uh, but then he grows into his ability to perform beyond that, that movie. That uh, is what we are called as leaders to be able to do with individuals, is cast people in their optimum role. And this really honed my focus in on that aspect of things, is being able to hone in on the casting of members of the team. It was a, an illuminating book. I really agree with that point, and I find that really interesting because if we all agree that people are the most important aspect of any business, then if you follow that through, then naturally we must have them in the best position for them to be effective or the best role for them to be effective. Otherwise, we are wasting the resource, if you like, for want of a better phrase. Absolutely. And the question that I challenged myself with is what metrics are you using to be able to measure those people to see they, that they are effective in those roles or that they've grown beyond that role and now they're better in a more strategic role? How do you do that? And I find that businesses uh, don't, uh, don't focus on that enough. I agreed. You know, it's often, a you know, the a paradigm isn't it leadership versus management but the truth is you have to do both you know one might be inspirational one might be operational but sometimes maybe people need to do both or are better concentrating on one thing rather than the other it depends depends on the circumstance absolutely cool um go to gadget steve uh go to gadget it's got to be my plex mb uh, sir anywhere media server uh i can have uh, it running in my data center and i can anywhere in the world i can get my music or whatever i want uh absolutely brilliant tool i'd never heard of a plex but it sounds brilliant a piece of software that can give me all my media wherever i am on whatever device i want and i can just like a library if you like for music movies whatever Absolutely correct. For example, I have uh, uh, over, let's say, 500 movies that I have uh, purchased uh, legitimately, uh, digitized them, they're on the server, I have my music library, it's all on my, uh, my uh, server, and uh, from my phone, from my tablet, 
anywhere in the world. I can access any one of my tools. I don't have to carry it around anymore on an iPod, so it's heavy. Uh, it's all via a streaming app. And I would say that's my go-to gadget. Awesome. I'm going to look into that. I'm going to look into the Plex. Here's one of my favorite questions, which always throws up interesting stuff. First car. <laughs> my first car, very first car was a 1976 uh, black Trans Am uh, that I eventually, uh, I would say within the first three years, converted into a drag racer with 950 horsepower. <laughs> that is unbelievable. So you're kind of like uh, technology's answer uh, to Vin Diesel in some ways. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny you say that, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love tweaking with the hardware. I love tweaking with uh, the uh, but with the Trans Am, what's unique about the Trans Am, if you're a car buff, um, uh, at the time, I wasn't able to find a lot of Pontiac parts to make it go faster, because I always wanted things to go faster, more efficient, et cetera, more power, it would go faster. But I couldn't find the Pontiac parts. Lo and behold, I found out that uh, a lot of the uh, uh, undertrain had the bolt holes for both Pontiac and Chevrolet, because it came from the same manufacturing facility. So I ended up converting the whole undercarriage to Chevrolet, putting a, uh, a, a supercharged Chevrolet engine in it with a uh, Chevrolet uh, drivetrain, the whole thing uh, with just a Pontiac body, which, um, which uh, was an amazing experience. I mean, it, it evokes memories for me because as a boy, I was car mad and I, I used to collect these little metal die cast models that we would be probably traditionally in the UK known as Corgi models, the company that made them. And I had a gold Pontiac Firebird with flames on the bonnet that was one of my favourite cars. Um, and that's what's made me smile about your your first car. I love that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a fun, fun project. Um, now, obviously, in these weird times, travel isn't really as much on the agenda as it used to be. Um, so I suppose it's fun to, to, to think about a fantasy holiday destination while travel is maybe more restricted. Yeah, well, there's only one fantasy holiday for me. It, it really stems from the, uh, from the Indiana Jones crusades that made the made really? very fantastically popular in our, in our in, 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 imaginations. But uh, there's really these types of fantasy vacations around the world. I, I would say I've always thought about going to a destination where I'm under uncovering an ancient civilization uh, and uh, discovering um, ancient facts and capabilities of that ancient civilization, uh, maybe even an archeological dig. So I, I fantasize, for example, uh, now about the Bosnian pyramids. That's kind of an emerging project in uh, Bosnia. Uh, and I, I, this would be ideal to be able to discover an ancient civilization, uncover secrets of, what, uh, uh, of how they lived, how they uh, survived, and perhaps how, what uh, drew them to extinction. Yeah, it, I mean, it is fascinating. And I suppose you would be, you, you must in all likelihood be super interested in stuff like the Inca Trail and the ancient Peruvian civilization, stuff like that. Yeah, all of these are just uh, um, a gold mine of uh, uh, imaginary adventures in my head. Uh, and looking at, uh, I would say, archaeology today, you know, new discoveries, it's a, it's a common, uh, common theme for me to explore on a, a weekend basis. 
brilliant. Um, and uh, I have to say and openly admit that I've seen all the Indiana Jones movies several times and love them. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to see the next one that, uh, that Harrison's been filming in the UK recently um, amid much excitement in the UK press. Uh, I hear rumours about it. That's just it. Just rumours. Yeah, absolutely. So favourite hobby, pastime? Uh, it's got to be uh, diving and skiing for me. Um, uh, skiing for, uh, provides me with the adrenaline rush going downhill. Love it. Um, and secondly, diving. It's a different world. To be able to go under the water and see the world from a different perspective, uh, much quieter, m really just the beauty and its raw nature of how uh, Mother Nature just uh, allows the, uh, uh, the, the beauty to thrive. You have the coral, you have, uh, for example, angelfish, uh, all the different types of uh, adventures you can have, um, all the way to hovering upside down inside of a, a barrel coral. Uh, just absolutely amazing uh, world. It takes you away from having your feet just on the ground. It boggles my mind a little how yet, how as yet, how little we still know about what's under the sea. Um, it's like one of the great undiscovered territories, if you will. Yeah, we think we know a lot uh, about this uh, about this world, but if you look at the ex uh, the amount of forests that we still have, the amount of sea that we still have, still vastly unexplored. It is, yeah, absolutely. So let's round off with favorite food and drink. Ah. Well, favorite food. It's, it's got to be uh, influenced from Europe uh, now for the past 11 years. Uh, foie gras, cheese, and a sweet wine like a, like a French Montbaziliac. Uh, it's just absolutely nothing's better unless, like I'm in London, and I can get a nice Italian spicy sausage roll with chips. I mean, that has <laughs> got to be great. I mean... <laughs> we, do, we do like our chips in the UK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's just amazing how the stuff just scratches an itch. Well, we, we, I can certainly see the influence of your time in France. Um, the wine you mentioned, uh, I suppose in, in the UK, we'd probably call that a dessert wine you'd have yeah. after, after pudding. But perhaps, I suppose in France, you might have it as an appetizer before uh, at the start. Yeah, it's uh, used in a variety of fashions, uh, uh, but uh, you'd be surprised if you're having foie gras, if you're familiar with the foie gras, um, it, it, the sweetness brings out the flavor of the foie gras in, an, in a way that uh, uh, is just absolutely amazing. Steve, you're, you're taking me, you're, you're transporting me to the valleys of the Dordogne, and I wish I was there right now than a rather gray afternoon uh, in the UK, but uh, thank you at least for the for the for the idea and the and the uh, the thought it's a very very nice thought <laughs> indeed um steve thank you so much uh for today and for talking to us um your professional and personal insights have been i know for me absolutely fascinating so i really i really thank you for joining us uh, and i look forward to sharing these harvey it's a pleasure thank you for having me